0: Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode seven. I'm your host, Barney Smith of storycomic.com, and we're honored to have with us famed Vermont author and folklorist, Joseph Citro. Joe, thank you for coming. I'm excited to have this conversation with you.
1: My pleasure, and I don't think I've ever seen you quite this excited.
0: You haven't seen me open presents on Christmas. I think that's no, probably no. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, so as a lot of people know, so as uh, Joe uh, is, is a native Vermonter, hails from the town of Chester. Uh, and uh, also, I think, what are you, a fifth generation Vermonter? or? Well, it depends, depends
1: which side of the parental spectrum you want to look at. My mother's side goes back a lot farther than my father's does.
0: Okay, all right, uh, all right, yeah. so we
1: don't we don't we don't count generations around here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so th- thank you, Joe. So uh, as I say, we have a lot of people we have a lot of people who are who are very familiar with you, a lot of uh, native New Englanders who have who probably most definitely have one of your books. Um, on their bookshelf Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, for, for the, for the few people that are watching some, uh, watching this from our, like our national audience. Uh, do you want to give people a, a kind of a, a, you know, a quick uh, background of of how you got into writing and how you got into uh, collecting stories?
1: Well, I, I think it's a, that's kind of a psychoanalytical question. Really. I, I, uh, my father was a storyteller and he collected a lot of local lore, which he, it, he told me when I was a little kid. Um, So I collected those stories and I um, wanted an audience at some point because I didn't have any kids of my own. It occurred to me that maybe I should be writing books and now the books are my children and the stories are collected in those books and passed along. And that's what I've been up to for the last 30 years, if you can believe that. Um, Interestingly, at least to me, uh, I apparently was the first Vermont writer to ever do that, that is collect the weird tales of Vermont. And um, my first book, Collecting Weird Tales, came out in 1994. Coincidentally, 1994 was also the year that my most recent novel came out. I actually stopped writing novels after five novels in 1994. So my novelist career sort of died, and my folklorist career sort of began, and the year was nineteen ninety four.
0: You came out with five uh, five fiction books from eighty seven all the way to ninety four, right? And and then from there, you went, as you said, you went straight to the nonfiction story collecting, uh, and you actually just recently, and I, I have a next to me here your 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 30th anniversary uh i think that's what you said You're the 30th anniversary shadow child which was your first book that you actually um published correct that's right
1: yeah that was the that was my first published novel not the first novel that i wrote but my first published novel that came out in 1987. so it's really quite a long time ago but it's never been it's never been out of print for very long it um it got picked up by a couple of other publishers after the, after the first publication. It's, I think it has aged pretty well. Um, In fact, it, it was, it's been optioned for movies a few times along the way, I think four or five times without ever making it to the screen. But recently it was just optioned again. And I'm working with a, a screenwriter who is a New Englander, and it's the first time that's happened. Earlier adaptations were wanting because they, they would leave out one essential character Vermont. They didn't get it. They didn't have any sense of Vermont. The first time, first time it was optioned, I saw the screenplay. They had some of the action taking place in a triple decker shopping mall in the Northeast Kingdom, <laughs> why any fool knows there's no triple-decker shopping mall in the Northeast Kingdom? So, it, you know, and, and that one, thank God, never made it to the screen. But the person I'm working with now is a New Englander. Um, in fact, he's gonna be coming here on the weekend to tour around to some of the sites with me that that are in the book um some of the sites that actually inspired the narrative way back in 1985 to 87 when i was actually writing the book so i th- i think the book is you know in a sense you could say it's an old book but i think it's just as it, it's just as much alive now as it ever was particularly to new generations of readers who, who discover it for the first time
0: so would wh- how would you, you i think yes uh so what would how would you describe what would be your uh like the back of the book um description of of shadow child
1: well it's kind of a, a a save the farm story but with the supernatural components um i don't want to talk too much about what the menace in the book actually is because it's it's worse than developers you know it's worse than bankers it's um, it, it, it's something that's been lurking in the hills and it's just been waiting for an opportunity to come back out and um, it's about a, a, a you know a young couple who, who've lived on a farm all their life and not really realized who they had for neighbors I think maybe that's about as Candid as I can be about it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? Is that
0: well, I, yeah. So I wanted to kind of share some of the some of the images that you want to, yeah. to share with it. Uh, is is well, a lot. It's kind of also kind of surrounds. There's some that that you and this is as you mentioned in a, in a previous interview, um, so, some interviews a while back. That um, writing all these, collecting all these stories you know, basically what it started by writing your fiction books and then learning some more things about in learning some of the history and more of the, um, some of the, the folklore and mystery that surround yeah. this Vermont. And, and one of them, as you, as you mentioned earlier is, you know, with, with shadow child is these underground, these, I don't know, what would be the best way that you describe them? These... Well,
1: they—they've been described as beehive structures. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been described as root cellars. Um, no one seems to know who made them, or when, or why. Um, there's a one variety of archaeologists says they're nothing but co- colonial root cellars, and that other other people speculate that they're older than that. They might be Celtic in origin and maybe go back to pre-Columbian times. In any event, the hills and mountains of Vermont are just littered with these weird structures. The one that's on the screen right now was probably more than anything else, the inspiration for Shadow Child. The photograph that we're looking at was actually taken around 1986, but in truth, My friend Rick Bates and I discovered that very place probably around 1965. We were hiking up behind the family place in Chester and we came across that damn thing. Although we came up from the other side. From our point of view, it looked like a knoll, just a grassy knoll and didn't look particularly weird. But as we walked around it, got to the other side, We saw this door leading into it, and that was weird, and and we didn't know what the hell it was because there was no house or anything like that around. Um, I I got more excited about about it later. At the time we found it, two boys growing up in Chester where everything is made of stone, you know, stone walls, stone foundations, lots of stone houses. The town of Chester is famous locally because of all the stone houses that are there. So we we weren't too alarmed by it. Until, it wasn't until quite a bit later that I went to a, a lecture by Dr. Warren Cook, who taught at um, what was then called Castleton State College, um, later Castleton University. And he was an early proponent of the notion that those were actually ancient. They were pre-colonial. Mm. Um, and might have been might have been constructed by ancient seagoing Celts. Well, maybe so, maybe not. But um, that was the germ of the idea that later blossomed into Shadow Child. And I sort of addressed the question of where those things might have come from.
0: And do you see your 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 five fiction books? Do each one of them uh, this is the one I read the, 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 the your other fiction books, do they have inspiration from Vermont folklore and, and mysteries as well? Oh
1: yeah. They're, they're all rooted in Vermont, legitimate Vermont folklore and history. They're all highly research dependent. Mm. And my, my idea originally at writing them was that, you know, we had all these cool old stories here in Vermont and mostly they were in the oral tradition and i got it into my head that those could be packaged as fiction for modern audiences Mm -hmm. i mean they're they're stories with tremendous endurance for example uh my first written novel not the first one published but the first one i wrote was about a hunt for the lake champlain monster now, the story of the Lake Champlain monster has been around for millennia. It's been, you know, the uh, the Native Americans told that story apparently, so it had good endurance. It had it, it endured as a story for hundreds of years. So it occurred to me that you know that might make good, good modern fiction. Yeah, mm-hmm. lake monsters. Um, so that's what that was, but it wasn't about the monster. You understand? It was about a search. For the monster
0: right it's a cryptozoological novel yeah <laughs> so as you as you said earlier that you these five books you you wrote them the, the last one you wrote in uh in 94 was also around that um that time when you wrote your first non-fiction you know collection of stories right so now that you've been collecting these stories for you know uh, a couple of decades now, have have you been able to find some uh, some good stories that you stumbled upon that that is kind of pushing you to want to go back and write some fiction? Uh, has there been a is, have you seen that happening now? Kind of like a um, well, almost like a circular event.
1: That, that's a that that's a really good question, and it's it gets kind of. It, it, outside my comfort level a little bit, because I, I never didn't want to write fiction. I, I I still have a few stories that I'd like to write a few novels. The problem for me has been, um, I, I like writing, but I don't like publishing. I haven't, I haven't got along well with publishers, uh, particularly publishers of the, of the novels. And for me, that publishing environment of big new york publishing houses like at uh, like warner books um the environment was simply too toxic for me i didn't like it um since i quit publishing novels the publishing industry has changed quite a bit it's sort of decentralizing and it's providing somewhat more of an inviting um I- environment so i i i, I think it it's possible that I'll write another novel and um, work with a a sympathetic and aggressive small publisher, if such a thing exists, or um, publish it myself. I could, I could go either way. Um, But while I'm not writing novels, I'm sort of sustaining myself with these collections of, I don't, I don't really want to call them nonfiction, but they're, you know, they're collections of folklore that, Folklore might be fiction. Who knows? Um, but but the books I write are collections of folklore and and just weird stories that are in fact nonfiction, true yeah. stories that are just weird.
0: So yeah, for instance, uh, yeah, talking about your um, the Vermont Monster Guide that you've uh, you've been working on with our with our mutual friend uh, um, Steve Bissett, This is an updated version.
1: That's an updated version, and the, um, or perhaps a better way to put that would be a re, or re, reissue. Mm-hmm. the The original publisher of that um, was the University Press of New England, and they they went out of, out of a lot of wonderful productive years and a whole, whole lot of wonderful books. They closed their doors at the end of 2018. Um, The consequence of that for me was about, I think nine of my books were suddenly out of print and not obtainable by my readers. Among them was the Vermont Monster Guide. Um, All of a sudden, nobody could get it anymore. Um, So since 2018 to 2020, I've been looking for another publisher to pick those up. And this is going to be published this year, later, maybe not in time for Halloween, but hopefully in time for Christmas, by uh, Eerie Lights Publishing. And they specialize in uh, cryptozoological titles and occult titles and paranormal titles and things of that type. So this book this book will be um, will live again. Champ will be back. This is again the first ever collection of all the Vermont monsters that I could locate from those that are really well known like Champ um, to some that aren't particularly well known like Side Hill crunchers, you know That's, that is the encyclopedia of Vermont monsters. And that's it. And that's 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 a variation of the old cover. This is a new cover, but it's not identical to the old cover. You know, I, I, while I wouldn't argue that all the monsters in that book actually exist, right. there's a legitimate tradition of those monsters in the folklore of of the state. Right. Um, yeah. You know, we we do have giant bullfrogs and giant rabbits and. Wendigos and werewolves and you know the whole whole rogues gallery of monsters. We've got them, but we didn't make up any of the stories in the Monster Guide. Okay. The Ghost Guide is another
0: (laughs) (laughs) thing. And then I did stumble upon one of your interviews where you actually said which one was actually. the the little easter egg so but i I wanted to make sure that i'll make people try to find that interview i'm not going to give that away so
1: yeah yeah. (laughs) well that's that's the the whole point of ghost hunting you see is to try to discern the real from the fantasy Mm -hmm. and so it's the ghost the ghost hunter's job to pick out those fake stories
0: and you had and we we talked before we went on the air that i'd said one of my uh, one of my favorite quotes you said in an interview when somebody asked you, you said well do you what do you do you believe this or do you think that person was telling you the truth and and you said my job isn't to investigate it's, it's just to collect the stories That's i right. thought that was a pretty good that was a really good yeah. um, you know description of cuz yeah. you get too exhausted by you know, thinking that it was your job to investigate, but you're, as you said, you're as a folklorist, your job is to collect the stories. Right. I I do.
1: I don't really investigate, but I do occasionally. Um, I guess you might say I put myself in harm's way, in the sense that I'll you know go up onto Glastonbury Mountain and hope that I don't disappear, or I'll I'll spend the night occasionally all by myself in a haunted building. I don't know that that really is could be classifiable as an investigation. In fact, I don't know what it means to investigate a haunted house. Is it is simply visiting an allegedly haunted house an investigation? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't even know what it means, but I do know what it means to collect stories, and, and that's what I've been doing, and that's what I do. I figure whether I believe in ghosts, or believe in Champ, or believe in Wendigos, or whatever, is really irrelevant my belief is irrelevant to the story. Um, I think I, I, I'm, I'm awfully, I'm afflicted with a real, um, real skepticism. And I think that's good for me and the work I do, because um, I think if I were a believer, I would write the stories one way, or if I were a denier, I, see I don't see I don't see skepticism as the same thing as being a denier if I were a denier I would write the stories another way um I'm, I'm as you may see by the way I'm sort of twitching here I'm always on the fence about this stuff and for the type of work I do that's exactly where I want to be
0: is you bringing this up you do have um, a book that's coming out soon uh that you're that our, our friend Robert Burnell is helping you illustrate. Uh, do you want to talk to us a little bit about a little bit about that one?
1: Yeah, um, this is a, a reissue of the Vermont Ghost Guide, but it's also a greatly enhanced edition. Um, 20 years have come out since the original Ghost Guide was was published. So I wanted to do at least 20 additional stories. But as it turned out, I did more than 30 additional stories. And um, in a few years, um, you know, assuming that I'm not writing via Ouija board, we could probably do another edition because there are so many ghost stories in this state. It's just incredible. And some of them are just delicious stories. That book should be published, I think, before the end of this year. But anyway, it's it's greatly enhanced, and Robert has brought a tremendous contribution to the project because, although I think there's something like hundred and forty stories in the book, and he's done a, he's provided an illustration for every single one. Wow, that's pretty amazing.
0: Just just a a quick recap, as you mentioned that you we just had Shadow Child as a reissue. Yep. You're having the Vermont Go- Monster Guide uh, found a publish for that. Um, yeah. The Vermont Ghost Guide. All three of these are reissues, and this is basically in response to your your orphan books. Is that the reissues?
1: Yeah, one one wants to keep one's progeny alive. You know, um, I, I those all those books were selling pretty rigorously when University Press of New England went out of business, and even even now I have bookstores calling me up, calling, saying, you know, when where, where can I get some more copies of the Vermont Monster Guide? Um, it sold pretty well, and it's a shame, you know, it's a shame to keep it off the market. So,
0: right. it'll be back.
1: Uh, the Monster Guide may even be out in time for Halloween this year.
0: Okay. And are you looking at some of your other your uh, some of your other books like the ghouls, ghosts, and graveyards and passing strange? Some of these other ones are well.
1: That one that you just mentioned, the ghost schools and unsolved mysteries, um, right. that's my first ever collection of these weird Vermont stories. Um, that's still available. That's published by Houghton Mifflin. Oh, okay, it's been constantly in print since nineteen ninety four. It's <laughs> never <laughs> never gone out of print. Um, it was originally published by a small Vermont publisher called Chapters Publishing in cooperation with Vermont Life Magazine. Now, I I don't want this to sound menacing or anything like that, but um, both those businesses have gone under after publishing my books. And then the University Press of New England went under after publishing my books. So I don't want to make that sound strangely sinister, but um, it's a fact. The uh, Chapters Publishing was bought up by Houghton Mifflin in Boston, and they've kept the book, my two books actually, this one and one called Passing Strange. They've kept those books in print all these years. Um, (laughs) This one is, It was such a difference working with a small publisher than a big publisher. So the editor, Barry Estabrook, came to me somewhat timidly and and said, uh, would would it be all right with you if we put a gravestone on the cover of your book? And uh, I said, sure, yeah, that'd be great. And uh, he said, well, would you mind then if we had your name on the gravestone? (laughs) So I said, you know, I might as
0: well get used to it. So let me ask you this as, as a writer. and Let me ask you some writing questions now. Yes. Uh, do you see these small publishing houses kind of going under just because of our, where things are happening and, and where people can self-publish now or also that Amazon is such a giant now that there's – it's, or do you see it just by happenstance? Or do you talk to other authors seeing that a lot of other smaller publishing houses seem to be disappearing?
1: You know, I, I'm really lost in publishing in the in, in the 21st century. I don't really know how to answer that. I know for writers who are just starting out, I suppose it's great to have something like Amazon publish your own book, kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. But that's only part of the um, part of the deal. I mean, part, the other part of the deal is getting getting the book out there and into people's hands. And I, I don't know how to do that. And so I, I, I'm not quite sure how to tell other people to do it. Mm. I've been very lucky because um, I've sold every book I've ever written. And in the beginning of my career, I had big publishers. I mean, when when my novels came out through Warner Books, that was like arguably the bigger biggest publisher in the world i guess and and so i i I was lucky because they got the books out they did the advertising they got my name around and so i i picked up readers and so now if i publish a book myself i've still got readers out there waiting for my next book not so if i were just entering the publishing world and publishing my first book. Um, so I, I really don't know what to say, Barney. I I, I think one, one would have to be really skilled, not only at writing a good book, but also the tactics of marketing, getting the book out there, getting it into stores, getting it into people's hands. Um, and I don't know how to do that. And I don't really have the kind of energy that it would take to do that well. Mm. Um,
0: so you, you you kind of alluded to some basic kind of like you know writing advice what's your process first what's your process how do you what's the process for for Joe Citro to sit down and 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 get a book written? well how, what, what do you do
1: it, it's it's the the fiction um I, I can talk about the fiction a little bit but it's a different discussion for the for the folklore collections. Okay. Um, if I'm writing a, a novel, what, what has happened historically is I'll get two or three ideas that really interest me. And before I ever put pen to paper, I'll start exploring the, the connections among those three ideas. That's the first thing that happens. Um, the second thing that happens is that I'll, I'll, I'll start to write. And the third thing that happens is the writing will sort of take over me. There's no outlining with me. It has always been a process of uh, um, the subconscious just kind of taking over. Um, I, I think fiction and dreams, the kind of dreams that we have at night, both come from the same place. One happens while we sleep, the other happens while we write. And it's sort of, for me, the, the, the experience has been the physical a physical act of dreaming. Um, the whole thing kind of wells from my self- subconscious. Um, no outlining. I make haste to start the book and get to the end of it just as quickly as I can. Then I go back and rewrite and reposition the fifth chapter might end up being the first chapter, but there's a much more conscious process in the rewriting than in the initial writing. Um, it's a little difficult to explain, but I've experienced it enough so that I, I I've come to trust my subconscious when I when I'm writing fiction. Um, now I know that isn't the way other writers do it. I, I have good writer friends, like my friend Jim D. Filippi. Um, who outline every single step of the way. I don't do that. When I started writing in the very beginning, when I was working on my first novel in the mid 1980s, um, I sort of did a, what you might call a self assessment. And I identified all the dodges that I would use not to finish the book. I I had made some false starts and I knew that I could easily trip myself into not finishing a book. So I identified all those, vowed that I wouldn't commit any of them, Hmm. made a pact with myself that I would write three pages a night, which seemed like a fairly modest goal. A page was like 250 words. Um, because I was using a typewriter back in those days as opposed to a word processor. And a page is about 250 words. So 750 words a night, less, fewer, fewer than 1,000 words a night. And I would do it six days a week. I had a, a conventional job at the time, so I would come home from that, I would have dinner, and I would write three pages. And the deal I made with myself was If I wrote four pages, that didn't mean that I could write just two the next night. Or if I only wrote one page, that didn't mean I had to make up for it the next night. It was three pages a night. And sure enough, um, in time, uh, I had a book. And if I were to write another novel, I would do it exactly the same way, because it worked.
0: So have you ever do, so as you write, so as you kind of mentioned, you're not really a taskmaster when it comes to like, this is how it is. Has there, has there been opportunities where as you're writing, your protagonist goes off in a different direction that you weren't planning, but you just followed along anyway?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, the characters really take over. Um, they'll say things that I didn't expect them to say. Um, they'll do things that I never anticipated that they might do. Um when I go back and read the book with the idea of getting it in shape for publication, I sometimes look at things and just can't. You know, where the hell did that come from? How did I write that? Hey, that's pretty good. How did I? How did I manage? It, it's it's a very magical and mysterious process when it's working right. Uh, then again, there are days when I just can't torture a sentence out of myself. So,
0: right. And do you see? And so, after you write it, how many drafts do you normally produce? Like as you said, obviously you you write it out first, and then you do a second go through. Yeah. That's
1: that's that's hard now because now I work on a word processor, so um, I don't really do drafts in the same way that I did in the beginning. I know my first novel, um, which was Lake Monsters, uh, there were thirteen drafts. That is thirteen complete books um before i before i considered it done but i i've sort of lost track of that because after that i started using a word processor and the term draft seems to be irrelevant now
0: yeah and do you have and and so and then at, at what point then do you like after you did it it's and it says it's good for you i'm done and then from there, you you send it off to an, an editor, or do you send it straight mm. off to a publisher? How do, what's the next steps after that?
1: Well, if we're talking if we're talking about novels, um, the only one, only the first one was kind of open ended. All the other ones had had deadlines. Mm. So I, you know, I didn't so much decide that I was done, but I ran out of time, mm. and and. And I'd send it off to the editor, and then he or she would give me more work to do. Uh, only the first novel um, that I wrote um, that I sold. The first novel was um, every other one I sold it. You know, I sold it before I wrote it. So.
0: And so, what would be your uh, for the for the writers that are listening to now? What would be the advice you would give them? Uh, any extra advice you would give them that you wished somebody told you back in the '80s?
1: Ooh, that I wish someone had told yeah. me. Yeah, um, that's a really good question, and I know I know the advice that I have given people. I'm not really one for giving advice because it's it. You really have to find your own path. Like if I if I told Jim D. Filippi that he had to write the way I do, he wouldn't he wouldn't write. You know, or if I had to write the way Jim D. Filippi did, outlining everything on index cards, I'd never finish a book. So I I don't know. I I think um, the only advice I've ever given anybody is if you decide to do it, finish it because too many writers have portions of novels, portions of books tucked away in trunks and bottom drawers. And um, it's real, real easy To get discouraged and to give up without finishing a draft. But once you have a complete draft, then you got something to work with and to work on. And um, you can usually, you know, you could usually wrap it up, I think. I think that's the best, most useful advice that I can give anybody. And uh, I'm not sure who gave me that advice. One, A guy I I used to know, um, a medical doctor named Robert Johnson, once said something that rang as profoundly true with me. He said, you can't teach people to write. You can only teach them how not to write. (laughs) And and I I think there's some truth in that. Um, And the way I would process that is I would tell people, to get an editor, um, even if you don't sell a book, after you finish it, try to identify a capable editor who can take your manuscript and give you useful feedback on the manuscript. I think that's just it's absolutely essential. I was lucky. I met a guy by the name of Ed Whalen, who is no longer with us, but he had been um, an editor years ago with some of the big houses like Dell or Putnam or something like that. And I happened to meet him and I hired him to to do some editing on my on my books before I ever sent them out to agents or editors. It was just an invaluable process. It was just, you know, to, to actually look at what I've written through somebody else's eyes um, was was really helpful to me. Uh, I, am not sure that would be helpful to everybody, but for me, it was good.
0: And do you think having, identifying that helped you, you know, become a, even an even stronger author because of that as well?
1: Well, I think, it, I think it did. I, I mean, I think it taught me that the editor is your friend. Um, too often I think beginning writers might feel a little bit Menaced by editors and think, oh, you know, you're trying to take my words away from me, or, you know, you want me to cut out fifteen hundred words here, and that's why you're destroying my book. Um, but really, the the editor and the writer both want exactly the same thing, and that is to make the best book possible. So, um, I I I think the editorial process is part of the process. It's part of the part of the journey from for sitting down at the keyboard to having a book on the shelves. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I like it. I've had some really good editors.
0: Right. And so, you know, talking about, talking about your books here, it's like, as, as you said, you kind of have these two separate genres of collecting stories and then, and then, and then your fiction, your fiction Mm -hmm. books. Do you feel as though you're kind of drawn towards one direction Over another, Uh, one is more of like a passion, while other is more of like your, your, you know, your uh, what you want to do. Do you feel as though like your your passion and your desire of what you want to produce kind of align, or they seem to be fighting against each other in a way?
1: No, I don't. I don't feel that there's any any kind of conflict or any kind of fighting between those two things. I mean, in a sense, you could say stories to stories, um, the stories that I make up. Are really retellings of things that I've heard or read or listened to or whatever um I I I just got a real sense of mission about collecting these Vermont tales um I don't I don't think anyone had ever done it before I started doing it I think I'm the my my book um this one Vermont ghost schools and unsolved mysteries was really the first book ever by a single Vermont writer who just looked into the shadows and came out with a bunch of weird tales. And ever since I did that, I've just felt a real mission about it. Like I've got to keep collecting because if I don't, these stories are going to get lost. Mm -hmm. And I'm very willing to pass the torch to somebody else. I would like help with this because there's way more stories than I'm ever going to be able to collect. But right. They keep, they keep, they keep coming to me, <laughs> <laughs> they, and you know, and, and since I've been doing this, people will bring me their stories. It's great. It's just a it's self-generating kind of thing.
0: Right. It's almost like it's like your your, your mission to do, put. To I, I do have a sense
1: you. of mission about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do. And it all started with my father because he had a he had a collection of stories that he would tell me when I was a little boy. And that's really where it started. Like those stories are. Many of those stories are in my first collection, my Ghost Ghouls and Unsolved Mysteries collection. Those stories that my father told me. He told me the story of Phineas Gage, the guy, the railroad man from Cavendish, who got a a tamping rod blown right through his head. Right. Um, he, he My father, uh, he didn't he didn't tell it accurately, but he. He told it well enough so that it, it sparked my curiosity and interest and I wanted to dive in and get the real story. Uh, and and I, I think that's part of the value of ghost stories and folklore is that it does ignite people's curiosity and interest. Um, I have no trouble going into schools at telling ghost stories to kids. Because, you know, one person might say, well, you're, you know, you're 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 leading them astray by telling them ghost stories. But I don't think it does at all. I think it fascinates them and will make them look a little deeper into the story. Mm-hmm. And I've seen yeah. it happen again and, and again, enough so that I'm confident that uh, I'm not doing them any damage by telling them about Emily's bridge, for example.
0: Yeah. Uh, but do you but you i guess yeah so to, to 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 add to that question uh do you feel as though that your uh, your mission of collecting all these stories for vermont um has kind of because we only have 24 hours in a day kind of sacrificing your desire to write the to write your own fiction stories
1: i i don't know that one is more valuable than the other really right. okay I, I don't know that one is high art and the other low art um i'll 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 leave leave the critics to sort that one out
0: for for those that are listening who who are kind of just discovering you where's the most accessible way where they can actually pick up some of your books right now
1: i i i i um i think probably on on amazon um okay and i think the books that are going to be published between now and the end of the year uh, shadow child just came up the new edition of shadow child just came up on amazon uh, i was selling it for about a year as a collector's edition limited edition collector's edition but now it's come out as what's called the enhanced edition and uh, it's exactly the same as the collector's edition except it's more widely available and it's available on Amazon.
0: And people, so as you mentioned earlier, you have your, your, your two re-releases of the Vermont monsters guide and the Vermont ghost guide. And those are going to be available very soon.
1: Very soon. I don't, I don't have a specific pub date, but one is supposed to be the monster guide is supposed to be available by Halloween. So it's just around the, uh, the corner, yeah. and the other one is supposed to be available by Christmas. Ghost Ghost Stories at Christmas,
0: right? So, and 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 both of those are are, are you're gonna you have those are gonna be uh, published. And as you said, they can probably find those. Um, those should be online, on Amazon, on yeah, Amazon those, as well. Those
1: should be on Amazon. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's Perfect. probably
1: the most accessible way to get my. Um, I I keep a small supply of books, and I do some mail order from my from my home. I, I'm not really trying to set myself up as a purveyor of books um i I write them but i don't want to be the one to to sell them but some people get them directly from me and i'm happy to do that
0: yeah all right well well thank you very much joe this has been great i think it's uh you've got some really great advice and i think you're you're really as you say capture you know capture vermont as uh vermont is much more than just you know trees and mountains and people it's there's definitely some things that are here so yeah thank you again as a as one native vermonter i want to on behalf of all of vermont thank you for you know collecting these stories for us
1: well my pleasure and thank you very much for having me on your uh, your show your podcast
0: yeah.